morning, we come to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen preaches Christ from the Old Testament. Stephen preaches Christ from the Old Testament. Acts chapter 7 is a, a big picture overview of redemptive history as preached by Stephen. So I'm not going to pre-read it this morning. Normally, we would all stand, we'd read the text. I'm not going to do that. Um, we're going to allow this message to unfold itself um, as we work our way through it this morning. All right? So we're going to go at it a little bit differently than we normally do. Amen? But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Because we need his help, always, to understand. Father God, we now pray and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, further this morning, the knowledge and understanding of your people with regard to your redeeming love your faithfulness in spite of the faithlessness of your people. Give us eyes to see. Bring to life those who don't believe through this powerful message. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. In one of his confrontations with the Pharisees, Jesus, in John chapter 5 and verse 39, said this. He said, you search the scriptures. Hey, that is, my friends, the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. In another clash, in John chapter 8, Jesus said yet again, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, that is death, friends, in context to eternal separation from fellowship with God. Hell. They replied, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then he went on to say, before Abraham was, I am. Wrangling with the Sadducees, who, by the way, um, did not believe in the resurrection and only accepted the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus said this, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures? That is what? The Old Testament. Or the power of God? Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? 
in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Now, when they squabbled about the Lord's disciples picking heads of grain to eat on the Sabbath, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said again, verse 3, have you not read? What David did when he became hungry, he, he, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have condemned, you would have not rather condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On the day of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus came alongside two heavy-hearted disciples who were wondering about all the things that had taken place, that is, Jesus being crucified, falsely accused, and so on. He came alongside of them once he was resurrected. Notice, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, we read. And then Jesus went on to give them lessons on how it was necessary, Luke 24, verse 26, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the, meaning the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't written yet, obviously. In declaring himself as the son of man, as Messiah, as the one greater than the temple, as Lord of the Sabbath, which is a claim of deity, God incarnate, Jesus referred to scripture, the Old Testament, naming Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, and how their ministries, how the entire Old Testament was moving, as promised, toward him as its fulfillment. That is exactly what Stephen's point is as he preaches Acts chapter 7. You know, sadly, there are many Christians today who, who believe that the Old Testament is somehow detached or separate from the New Testament. You don't want to be one of those people. You know, they believe that the character of God in the Old Testament is or was somehow different than descriptions of God in the New Testament. Sorry. I don't know where you get that. <clears throat> you know, Martin Luther faced that in his own day. He said this. The Old Testament is the cradle in which the Christ child is laid. The New Testament finds its birth in the old. The heritage of the old supports and explains the new. This is precisely 
where Stephen directs the attention of his hearers in Acts chapter 7. You want to know how to defend the faith? You want to know how to witness to a Jew or to a Gentile? Pay attention to this sermon. You'll be better equipped to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. Amen? Amen? Amen. Acts chapter 7 is the longest chapter in the book of Acts. Obviously, it consists of Stephen's sermon before he enters into glory. That is, before they murder him for the message. Stephen was one of the seven chosen servants of the early church. He was a Hellenistic Jew. That is a Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jew who was given the ministry over Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem. Because a complaint arose that they were being neglected of the daily distribution, that is, of food. Now, the apostles know that they must address this, but if they get involved in managing all the details, they will be distracted from their primary ministry, that is, studying, preaching, and prayer. So they delegate, and the problem is resolved. They choose seven godly faithful men. Stephen is one of those men. So as the word of God continued to increase, the number of disciples also continued to increase. And Stephen, look back at chapter 6 and verse 8, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then a conglomeration of Hellenistic synagogue members rallied together to oppose Stephen. Chapter 6, verse 10. But, notice, they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't banter with this brother. It was a losing battle. These are religious leaders. This cat is a regular, everyday Christian brother, full of the spirit, radiating with the face of an angel, whatever that looked like. So they secretly induced men to say, verse 11, chapter 6, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And then again, verse 14, we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place, that is to say the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So, this twofold charge brought against Stephen was that he was teaching about destruction of the temple, and he was defiling and desecrating the law of Moses. And now what we have in the first 53 verses of Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's defense. Now, this, this is not a defense as you might find in the court of law, but this is Stephen's apologia. Stephen's apologia. As believers, we're all familiar with the subject of 
apologetics. Apologetics, the study of defending the faith. One of the things Christians are responsible to do. Here, Stephen is doing what, what Peter will later write in 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at it, verse 15. Always being ready to make a defense, apologia, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. So here, after charging him with speaking against the temple, notice, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel, right there at the end of chapter 6. So here then, chapter 7 and verse 1, then the high priest said, are these things so? Have you blasphemed God? Moses? The law and the temple? Have you blasphemed this temple? Have you done that? Stephen then walks through several high points of Old Testament history. These men do not know what they have gotten themselves into. They've just tied their own noose, spiritually speaking. Stephen proceeds to recall the most important times and events in redemptive history. How everything in the Old Testament, he, he points out, was moving forward, as promised, toward Jesus, just like Jesus did. Just like his master did. And all along the way, he shows this unfolding plan of God, he, he points out how the Israelites throughout history continually rejected God's plan at every turn, time and time again. So he starts with scripture. He begins with the word of God. And he makes clear that the things that are precious to them, these religious leaders, are precious to him. He's not a blasphemer. I love the word. As a matter of fact, let me take you to the word. Masterful. He uses scripture to turn the table on them. He goes on to indict them of blasphemy. One of the charges against him is blasphemy. He turns the table and points out that they're the blasphemers. That's what I mean by they just tied their own noose. They have committed the ultimate blasphemy of rejecting God and his Messiah, his one and only Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, God's beloved son. The very presence of God tabernacled in human flesh, the God-man, Jesus. God's temple in a human body. They rejected and jumped down to verse 52, whom, Stephen says, 
whom you have betrayed and murdered, just as your forefathers did the prophets who foretold of his coming. Imagine that. So having been accused of speaking against the temple, Stephen proceeds to preach on four major periods of Israel's history, highlighting four major figures. Abraham, the, patriarch, the patriarchal period. He highlights Abraham. Then he moves on to Joseph in the Egyptian exile. And then to Moses and the Egyptian exodus, along with um, some of their uh, wilderness wanderings. Followed by David and the ensuing monarchy, including David's son Solomon. All right? This is where, this is where we're headed. You with me? All right. And he points out that through each and every one of these periods, places, and peoples, never, again, never was God's presence limited to any particular place. See the picture being drawn? This is a gutsy move. This, this man had courage. He, he's not only preaching against the Sanhedrin, the religious heretics of the day, but also to the effect that the temple is now obsolete. This beautiful temple he's pointing to, it's obsolete, for which he will pay, of course, the ultimate price. His life. So he begins his defense going all the way back to their ethnic hero, Abraham. The fact that long before the Jews of the temple period, the patriarchs never imagined, your hero Abraham never imagined that God was limited to or imprisoned by some building, regardless of how beautiful it may be. He highlights Abraham in verses 2 through 8. Notice, beginning with the description of God. The God of what? Look at it. The God of? Glory. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's modern-day Iraq. God's not limited to a zip code. God's not limited to Mount Zion. God's not limited to this temple. Basically is what he's saying. Gutsy. The God of glory was present with Abraham everywhere he went. And as a matter of fact, Abraham never owned a square inch of Canaan, verse 5. Let alone a Mount Zion. And yet God was with him every single step of the way. All along his journey, God was there. And as a matter of fact, Abraham lived looking for the true Canaan, which is yet to come. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 12, do we not? Whose builder and founder is God. He had in his crosshairs a heavenly Jerusalem. He was looking way out by faith. Not to some building made with hands. 
Friends, remember the Jews' great claim that they were sons of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. We're children of Abraham. We read something of that in John 8. That was the debate. Abraham's our father. No, Jesus said, let me tell you who your father is. Who's your father? Who's your daddy? The devil's your daddy. Don't call Abraham your father. You don't believe in me? That means you have nothing to do with Abraham. Your ethnicity means zilch. Your daddy's the devil. Stephen defines Abraham's call and legacy as though he's saying to these religious leaders, you have not understood his call. You have, un have not understood his purpose, have you? That would be unheard of to say such a thing to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem around the temple. Unheard of. This, this is bold preaching. We need more bold preachers. See, the Jews were under the false impression that so long as the temple stood, so long as this temple is upright, that they were guaranteed his protection while destruction of the temple meant that he had abandoned them. So, remember, it was against those impressions that the prophets came in the Old Testament. Look at it. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. The prophet said, do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery? And swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered? The temple, the temple, the temple. That you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. I see to the folds of your heart. Every thought, every motivation, I see through you, says the Lord. So all their hopes, all their dreams, all their desires were wrapped up in a little piece of real estate in Jerusalem on Mount Zion within this glorious, no doubt, glorious temple, beautiful temple, with hearts a world apart from God. Abundant outward forms. abundant ceremonies and institutions, but they didn't know God. These people didn't know God, and they didn't love God. How do we know they didn't love God? It's proven by the fact they didn't love his word. Let me say that again. Proven by the fact that they did not love his word. What is the primary proof that someone has the Holy Spirit residing within them? What is the primary proof 
that someone is a true believer. It's simple. They love the word of God. They want to hear his word. This is how you hear from God. He's not going to speak from the clouds, friends. He speaks through his word. Divine revelation. Jesus is the word who's come in the flesh. We hear him. He speaks through scripture. Don't tell me you're a Christian if you don't want to hear the word. I say repent and ask God to give you a heart of want, of desire to hear his word. That's how you know. You want to know how you love God? You love his word. Israel continually rejected his word. Nevertheless, God sent his prophets like Jeremiah to bring warnings of impending judgment. I'm going to take you all off into exile. (laughs) Stephen continues, notice, God made covenant with Abraham, blessed him in his old age with his son Isaac, passed down to Jacob and his sons. These are the patriarchs. And those sons, the sons of Jacob, revolted against his son Joseph out of what? Look at the text. Jealousy, verse 9. They sold him off into Egypt. You remember the story? Remember our study in Joseph? That was fun, wasn't it? Remember that? And then God eventually caused a great famine to come upon the land and raising Joseph up to the seat of authority under Pharaoh and the mighty empire of Egypt. Amazing. All according to God's sovereign plan. Being worked out. Leading us to Christ. And then, by way of God's providence, his brothers make their way to Egypt for relief, right? They sold their brother off, brother off years ago. God strikes the land with a famine. They're sitting around looking at each other at the table. Remember the story? And Jacob says, stop staring at one another. Get up off your rear ends and get down to Egypt and get some grain, find some grain because we're gonna die. Remember the story? <laughs> Imagine the father. What are you looking at? What are you gawking at? Get up, go. So they go. Chapter, chapter 7, verse 12. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers there the first time. Joseph's brothers, who sold them off because of jealousy. And friends, look it. Just as God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia, here, here's his point. God, almighty God, the God of glory, was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was also with Joseph in Egypt, while at the same time was with his father Jacob up in Canaan. During the famine, he was there, the God of glory. There was no temple. They're accusing him of blaspheming the temple. God does not dwell in buildings made with hands. Now notice Stephen repeats the word Egypt six times in verses 9 through 15. 
Six times we see the word Egypt, making sure that these religious heretics here in Jerusalem grasp the significance of what he's saying about the God of glory. Verse 13, on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Remember, they came down to Egypt, they got grain, they went back, and then they had to come back again, and a bunch of situations and scenarios um, worked themselves out there. So they go back a second time, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives, 75 persons in all. This was a country not their own. Egypt was a country not their own. The descendants of which would then become slaves for how many years? 400 years as God preordained. Verse 17. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt. There arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and ministered or I'm sorry, and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants that they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. Pharaoh, this Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph, who didn't know anything about Joseph, didn't care anything about Joseph or that time period, is becoming paranoid because of how these Israelites are multiplying in fear that they might come alongside of an invading nation and overtake us, so let's go kill all the male babies. How about that? Throw them to the alligators. Moses, God raises him up, and in defending his own people, becomes an outcast. You remember, he flees from Egypt and into the wilderness for how many years? 40. And he was 40. So from 40 to 80, he's a shepherd in the wilderness in Midian. And who shows up? The God of glory, the God of glory, who's not limited to buildings made by the hands of men. Notice verse 33, but the Lord said to him, Moses, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Did that take place on Mount Zion? No. Verse 36, this man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and then in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Who's he referring to, beloved? Who's he referring to? Jesus, the one to come. Listen to him. When he comes, take heed. Listen. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. How did they turn back to Egypt? Not physically, in their hearts. God knows the Back to the world. Stephen then proceeds to take them through the wilderness account. 
that 40 years where Israel murmured and complained in the wilderness against leadership, which is to complain against God. But, verse 42, it gets thicker. Check this out. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it was written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? Let's do a heart check. Where was your heart back then? You also took along the tabernacle, notice this, beloved, of Moloch and the star of the god Ramtha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. You know what he's saying here, beloved? Every time God from heaven through Moses instructed the Levites, the priests, the priestly tribe, to take up, that is, pull up stakes on the tabernacle because God was moving them through the wilderness. Every time God told Moses to tell the Levites to pull up stakes, he says every time they did that, the people picked up their idols and move them on to the next location. That was their heart. What did the tabernacle represent? The dwelling place of God. The God of glory. And they picked up their idols and went on to the next location. Remember what John Calvin said about the human heart? It is a perpetual idol what? Factory. May we always beware. May we run to the cross every day. May we run to his grace every day. May we repent of our sin every day because we're saved. Right? Another sign of a believer is that they have a repentant heart, a repentant cry. They realize they're sinners. They struggle with sin, which is a sign that you're saved. If you struggle with sin and it grieves you, that's not a sign that you're not saved. <laughs> to the contrary, amen. They pick up and they took up their idols right into the next camp. For 40 years they wandered like that. Had, for, had God forgotten his people? Had God forgotten his promises? No. No. So as with Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, so too with Moses, God is with his people. There again in Mesopotamia. He's with his people in Egypt. He's, he was with his people in Canaan. He was with, with his people in Sinai. And then he introduces David and Solomon. Verse 46. When David at that time, desires to build a house for God, a temple for God, he was not allowed to do so because he was a man of war and bloodshed. Primary reason is because he murdered Bathsheba's husband. His son would build the temple. Solomon. The Solomonic temple. Great, beautiful temple, full of beauty, full of splendor. Remember what Solomon prayed? The most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. He does not. So Stephen 
in his preaching here draws a contrast between made by hands and made without hands. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 48. As the prophet says, this is God speaking. Heaven is my throne. (laughs) The earth and all the creation, it's my footstool. The earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? I mean, let's reason together. What could you do for me? Nothing. What place is there for my repose? What, are you going to give me a place to take a nap? I mean, a place for me to rest? I don't need to rest. (laughs) Come on. Was it not my hand which made all these things? The universe. Okay, I spoke this thing into existence. What are you going to make for me? What are you going to do for me? So here then, Stephen now, back to Stephen. After making a conclusive defense of the faith, his apologia, notice the indictment. Verses 51 to 53. You men who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Answer the question. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, that is of Christ, who betrays and murders you have now become. Betrayers and murderers, you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. The key verse of understanding this entire speech is verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your forefathers did. That's heavy. You know the phrase stiff-necked? That phrase there, you know where that comes from, don't you? That's etched in Israel's memory because that is what God referred to Israel as during the golden calf debacle. You're stiff-necked. You notice, he says, look, name just one one prophet. Name one of God's prophets who was well-received and believed on by your forefathers. He describes them as having uncircumcised hearts, uncircumcised ears. They're guilty of sinning against God the Holy Spirit, implying that that, that they are deaf to the truth. They're heathen at heart. But yet, look how religious you are. The temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. Ceremonies, rituals, feasts, the temple. You're heathen. You're not a believer. Stephen is saying, you're the ones who do not understand the meaning of the temple. You're the ones who do not understand the law of Moses. What's his main theme here, beloved? Stephen's main theme, we touched on this last time, is that Jesus, the Messiah, has come and has replaced the temple and has fulfilled the law, all of which bore witness to him. He is the temple. He fulfilled the law. You trust in him or you'll die in your sin gospel that's the good news 
What do I have to do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Repent of your unbelief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. From what? God, his wrath that you deserve and I deserve. That's what Jesus came to bear. Verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth. They're not grinning. Oh, that was a great speech. (laughs) They're gnashing their teeth like an animal, like a wild animal. What is it that makes someone angry? Really angry. Think about it. What, What makes someone really angry? The fact that they're dead wrong. When someone has an unassailable argument against you, the facts are so clear, you can't even open up your mouth to defend yourself. Makes you angry. They're full of rage. They're cut to the quick, which cut to the quick literally means to be sawn in two, to be sawn in half, to be ripped apart. The veneer of their false piety has been torn to shreds. They look religious. He just took an axe, a spiritual axe to this veneer. Laid bare. So here's Stephen preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's showing them very carefully, very craftily, very factually that they are no different than their countrymen of ages past who killed the prophets. And they have demonstrated that in ultimate form by crucifying Christ. And they're soon to demonstrate it once again by stoning this man to death. So notice the irony. The religious leaders, these religious hypocrites, had made this about the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. The truth is, it is all about the temple. It's all about the temple, but not about the temple, they think. Not about the temple, they think. Their Jewish national identity took precedence over its identity, the temple's identity with God's son, the promised son of God, the Messiah. And then they made the sacrificial system within the temple More important than the ultimate sacrifice himself. Jesus, the Lamb of God, slaughtered before what? The foundation of the earth, preordained by God. And they missed him. Friends, (laughs) why don't we have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least once in our lifetime? Okay, why do we not have to look towards Jerusalem and bow down three to five times a day in prayer? Why was the temple destroyed in A.D. 70? Why will there never be the necessity for another temple? Because Christ tabernacled among us. Christ The temple of the living God came, died, rose again, and dwells in the hearts of his people by faith. That's why. Which 
makes one individual Christian worth infinitely more than this temple made with hands. Infinitely worth more than any temple, regardless of its beauty. God has nothing more to do with that temple. This temple, when Stephen preaches, will be raised with a Z to the ground in just a few years. Why? Because God's son has been raised, raised with an S, into heaven, into glory, and now dwells in his people's hearts by faith. That's why. Temple? You know, these Jewish people came oh so close to the kingdom of God. These Jewish people came oh so close to the kingdom of God, but man, yet so far. Right? And make no mistake, friends, listen, make no mistake. The deepest, darkest recess of hell is reserved for these people sitting here on this day, standing here on this day, unless they repent. Unless they repent. Likewise, the deepest, darkest recess of hell has been reserved for people who go to church simply to go to church. Unless they repent and go there to meet the one true and living God. This is fact. This is word. Because men... Their heart, they don't change, but by the supernatural work of Almighty God. We're still driven by religion inside. God hates religion. Hates it. See, there's a similar problem with many professing Christians today. And the issue is that there are two kinds of Christians. Two kinds, on the outward anyway. Those who merely profess faith and those who actually possess faith. Some merely profess. I, I hear people say, I was born a Baptist, I'll die a Baptist. Or, I was born a Presbyterian, and I'll die a Presbyterian. Or a Lutheran or whatever, fill in the blank. Those who go to church as a duty, doing their thing, and they leave happy that they went to do their thing. Mere professors of faith. How do I know that's the case? Very simply, beloved, because in so many places, the gospel today is not preached. The word of God is not read. There's nothing of the word of God. People go to church in droves. That is, they go to buildings in droves, and they're simply wasting their time. They have a theology like these Jews, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and they completely miss and do not know the Lord of the temple. Do you know the Lord of the temple? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Have you repented before the living God and accepted God's one and only sacrifice, his son Jesus Christ, as your substitute? Because you're not going to make it in on your own merit. And he only has one substitute. His son. And by his resident presence in you, that makes you temple of the living God. 
That's good news. Unless Jesus Christ dwells in man's heart by faith, you stand condemned. Come to Christ and be saved. Now, there are those, most of whom make up this local assembly, who possess saving faith. See, they attend church realizing that they are the temple of God. We are the temple of the living God. We gather as the temple to worship the king of the temple, Jesus. That's why we come to church, to worship the king. So how do they respond? Notice, they cover their ears and they gnash their teeth. They cover their ears and they gnash their teeth. We do not want to hear this. They're filled with rage, rage out of control. They grind, they gnash their teeth at Stephen. Remember what Jesus said about gnashing of teeth? Jesus said this, all those who die without God, rejecting Jesus Christ as his only way to the Father, will go to hell where Jesus said repeatedly, there is wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. What that means, beloved, is that hell does not have a remedial effect. When a person goes to hell, it does not produce remorse in that person. It only increases their anger and rage toward God, who can find them there. God can find sinners to hell. And they rage and they gnash their teeth at him forever. And as an image bearer of God, every human being is an image bearer of God. Imagine hell and eternity where the image of God is dismantled and dismantled and dismantled until you become like a beast raging and gnashing at your creator because you rejected Christ. Because that's what he took on the cross. He bore that on the cross. They rage. You know this preaching here of Stephen? This is an example of God's word being faithfully proclaimed. And how it divides between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intentions of the heart. True preaching does just that by the resident power and presence of God the Holy Spirit. That's why he tells preachers, preach the word whether they like it or not. That's what Stephen does, just like his Lord, just like his master. And it shreds their hearts wide open. Their rib cage is pulled back, and their hate for God is on display. They hate God. They hate his messenger. They're about to put him to death. Now, notice they're full of hatred in contrast to this Stephen, the messenger, who's full of the Holy Spirit. This is beautiful. And notice, he says, here's Stephen. Okay, they're, they're, they're lobbing stones, right? They, they drag him away, and he looks up. Behold, he says, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You need to fear proclaiming Christ? What's the worst that can happen? People usher you into heaven. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. They kill you. 
So Stephen, notice, with an otherworldly, otherworldly countenance, the face of an angel, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, the fact that Jesus is standing is ever so significant. Because everywhere in the New Testament where it refers to Jesus in, in, in heaven, it has him sitting, not standing. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because his priestly work, work on earth is done. The priest in the Old Testament never sat down. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and his priest, his work is complete. He sat down. Here he stands up to receive one of his own, as F.F. F. Bruce put it in his commentary. Stephen, and I quote, has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before the Father. Isn't that beautiful? So imagine, okay, you're, you're, you're in a court of law, you're ordered into a courtroom, you're accused of a heinous crime, you're on trial for your very life, you're made, you've made your plea of innocence, I'm innocent, I did not commit this crime, you, you, you sit down, and here comes the prosecutor's opening statement. Here he comes. When he's finished, he, he tur turns it over to the counsel of the defense to make his opening statement, but there's no defense counsel present. You're all alone. And then all of a sudden, imagine, the judge stands up. He comes out from behind the bench, comes down to the floor, and he says, I am counsel for the defense today. You have the judge on your side. The judge is now your defense attorney. What Stephen sees here, the heavens open and the judge of heaven and earth, Jesus the Christ, the victorious son of God, rises in his defense. That's what he sees. Standing at the right hand of God, the father. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. As he called on the Lord. Behold, I see him. I see him standing. They went on stoning him. And he called and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Receive my spirit. What did Jesus say from the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here, Stephen commits his, hand, his spirit into the hands of the Son to whom all power and authority has been given from the Father. Receive my spirit, Lord Jesus. Verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Even in his death, he reflects the words of the character of his master, Jesus Christ. The good news of forgiveness. The glorious good news of forgiveness even toward these men. Is it possible for these men who stoned Stephen to be saved? If they repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any sin that you possibly have committed in this room for which God cannot forgive? Only one. 
reject Christ as God's only means of substitutionary satisfaction to the Father, unforgivable. Repent and believe, and you'll be saved. You don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. God knows. You repent and believe on his son, and all your sins are washed away. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. And if you get stoned on the way home because you say, Jesus, you'll see your Lord stand up and receive you. Word. Almost done. Notice Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That is a prayer. That's not a statement. I mean, Stephen doesn't say, I, I forgive you. He could have said that. He didn't say to those stoning him, I forgive you all. He doesn't say that. He prayed to the Lord Jesus himself that he might extend his forgiveness to his enemies. Because if you persecute my people, you persecute me. Lord, forgive them. Now, is that, is that a fruitful prayer? Oh, yes. Remember, this is a move. Peter is, or, uh, Stephen is, 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 is showing by way of his speech God's movements throughout redemptive history. And here, this prayer is fruitful because they laid their garments. Look at the text. They laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus who persecuted the church who was taking not merely men but men women and children who profess Christ off and into prison they laid down their tunics so that their arms could be loosed and freed up to stone this man and they laid them at the captain at the feet of the captain on that day this Saul Saul of Tarsus who consents to the death of Stephen and as Acts 26 seems to indicate, which is Paul's own testimony later in his life, you can read it this afternoon, he seems to indicate there that he was already a member of the Sanhedrin and he cast his vote on that day for his death. Oh, oh. forgive him. And there at the feet of Stephen is this man, Jesus will call to himself like a brand plucked from the fire in answer to the prayer of this martyred man. And this, this day, this murder is an image that Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul, will never forget. I'm the least of all the apostles because I, I persecuted the Lord's church. And he showed me mercy. He saved me. He made me a preacher of his gospel. Early church father Augustine said this, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. So here's Luke, the author, laying the groundwork for the great victory that God will win through Saul, that is the Apostle Paul's conversion and his subsequent mission, missionary service, taking the unstoppable gospel witness worldwide. God's redeeming purposes 
right here. So as a witness of our Lord Jesus Christ, Stephen's violent death, notice, this is a very violent death. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week and how they actually grieved for him. But notice, his violent death, notice, it's meant with the words, and he fell asleep. <laughs> Violently stoned to death, and he fell asleep. His, his body killed over. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He, he saw the Lord stand up to receive him. I see the Lord. Behold, I see my Lord. He receives him. At that moment, he was in glory. The presence of God. You see, friends, for the Christian, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Death is swallowed up in victory because we're in Christ Jesus, so we're able to say, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? You'll never taste death, believer. Those outside of Christ, the death that they taste is everlasting torment. They, they are away from, away from God's gracious goodness, just, just general revelation itself. The light of the day cast into outer darkness, away from God's gracious presence. This is as close to heaven as an unbeliever ever gets. Don't go there. Don't go there if you're an unbeliever. Come to the one who stood up on this day because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And God's delighted on this day. And friends, there is a welcome. There is a welcome waiting for everyone who is in Christ. And it's this. Ah, yes. Enter. Enter in to the joy of your, your Lord. Enter in. This Lord who does not dwell in buildings made with hands, but in the hearts of those who are his by faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? May God bless his word to your hearts. Father, we thank you for this. What an amazing scene. That your plan of redemption was being worked out as you preordained that on this day, this man who was charged falsely for blasphemy proclaims you the one true God and your only way of salvation. And he paid for it with his life. Lord, we thank you for this account. Lord, help us to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within our hearts with gentleness and respect to our loved ones and friends or even strangers who, who are lost as we once were. And Lord... Um, I do pray that you will bolster within us just a confident trust that the work is complete, Christ has done it all, that our righteousness is in him and him alone, and that when we come to church, to this build that we call church, that, that we are the church. May we be reminded that we, we come here to worship together corporately, a redeemed people, because of the finished work of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.